A couple of years back, uh, I published a book, uh, The New Imperialism. Uh, the book was written shortly before uh, the U.S. went to war in Iraq, and it was finished just about the time when Baghdad was occupied. And uh, like everybody else at the time, I was kind of really confused as to exactly why and what the motivations were for that particular action, uh, particularly since it was, I should have thought, evident to anybody that the weapons of mass destruction argument was a hoax and that uh, various other arguments were a hoax. So I concentrated on a couple of issues. One was the long-standing geopolitical interest of the United States in the Gulf region because of its oil resources, and not simply from the narrow sense of preserving American uh, situation, but uh, dealing with potential rivalries, and in particular, uh, the rivalry that was emerging with China. And I think that rivalry is uh, very, very present in the world. You'll find echoes of it uh, in Sudan, Nigeria, uh, all over the Middle East, in Central Asia. Uh, there is, a, I think, a growing conflict over who's going to control the oil resources of that, for that reason. So I think there was an argument there which was a serious one and which we still should take uh, on board. <clears throat> the second argument I used was that uh, there's a relation, organic relation, as Hannah Arendt pointed out, between external activities, particularly imperialist activities abroad and domestic circumstances. And as she put it, uh, imperial ventures abroad and tyranny at home go hand in hand. And that I thought that uh, the disciplining of the U.S. internally was just as important uh, as uh, the militarism abroad and that the militarism everywhere was uh, pretty much taking over. And I, I really liked uh, one of those little remarks that Bush lets drop every now and again when he kind of said, uh, introducing the attorney general, he kind of said, I wonder why he's called a general. Well, I guess it's because we're all in the military now. And I think this total militarization of everything is in the sort of subconscious of, uh, of uh, this administration. So that was important too. But then about the time the book was published, another event occurred which made me think of something else which I hadn't really taken uh, into account uh, very, very fully and very properly, at least not directly. And that was that in September 2003, Paul Bremer began upon a restructuring of the state apparatus in Iraq, the whole legal state apparatus. And during the rest of the several months that followed, he continued to do this in a whole series of decrees which restructured how Iraq was to be governed and what the state apparatus was to do. This was, of course, um, considered by many to be an illegal thing to do for an occupying power, and it was illegal under the Hague and the Geneva Conventions. And so one of the things that then happened was a very hurried handover to some interim government which was declared by the U.S. to be sovereign, even when the rules of transition from the coalition provisional authority to this interim government were that it could not change any of these decrees, nor could it write any new ones. So it was actually bound by these decrees that Bremer had uh, issued. Now, these decrees, I think it's important to, if you can go over them in detail, but broadly they go something like this. The, the decrees said that everything in the Iraqi uh, economy was to be open to private ownership and that for privatization of everything except oil resources was critical. The second thing was there was to be absolutely no barrier to foreign direct investment into Iraq 
and in particular foreign ownership of anything going on in Iraq. The third thing was there was to be free trade with the rest of the world. And the fourth thing was there was to be no barrier to the repatriation of profits out of the country to abroad. Um, there were other things too, like uh, the conservative dream of the flat tax was recommended and imposed. Uh, there was particular attention being played to uh, intellectual property rights and, and, and so on, but those, those, those were other elements in, in this package. And this package uh, organized uh, the Iraqi state in a very particular way. And when I read all of this, I had this kind of throwback, as actually quite a few people did at the time, when I suddenly thought about what had happened in Chile after the coup of 1973. Uh, when Pinochet dislodged uh, Allende. And within a couple of years, Pinochet had, uh, I guess it's an awkward place to say this, summoned the so-called Chicago boys uh, to come down to, uh, well, no, they didn't have to come down because they were already there. Uh, the Chicago boys to restructure the economy, and they did it exactly the same thing. They privatized everything except the key resource, which was copper. It's interesting. And, but everything else was to be open to foreign direct investment, foreign ownership, no barriers to repatriation of foreign profits, etc. Natural resources were to be sort of open up to, to private exploitation and all the rest of it. So what it suddenly seemed to me was that from 1973 to 2003, you had a 30-year period where this kind of idea of a particular kind of state apparatus, which was structured in that way, was are going to be fundamental to what politics was about. And that neoliberal state apparatus, I choose to call a neoliberal state. Uh, it is the institutional arrangements of a neoliberal state which uh, believe that uh, uh, human welfare is to be uh, maximized and enhanced by a system based on private property, free markets, free trade, entrepreneurial liberties, uh, freedoms, and, and, and the like. So this neoliberal imposition seemed to me to be a very important thing to look at more coherently. And in particular, the first uh, cut at it would say, well, maybe this is what American imperial policy has been about all along. That is, the imposition of neoliberal state apparatuses wherever it can. And when you looked very carefully at something like, what does the IMF do and its structural adjustment programs, you'd say, well, it imposes neoliberal state apparatuses, and, and, and that's, what it's, that's what it's doing. It's an agent of US uh, imperial power. So there would be a kind of a tendency to say that the neoliberalization of the global economy has been, as it were, a direct consequence of American imperial interventions with these two violent events, i.e. Chile at the beginning and Iraq uh, at the end, sort of, um, sort of bookends of a whole, of a whole history of, of neoliberalization. But then it seemed to me that this was not uh, the full story at all, and it couldn't be the full story. After all, one of the main agents of neoliberalization was Margaret Thatcher, and I couldn't th imagine that Margaret Thatcher would simply regard herself as, as somehow or other pushed to what she was doing by, uh, by U.S. power. And, and when I started to think further about it, I started to think, well, you know, the other thing that's happened in the world where a kind of neoliberalization has emerged has been China, and uh, you could not say that Deng Xiaoping in 1978-79 when he initiated this big wave of reform around 19, uh, that period was somehow or other responding to U.S. imperial pressure. So it seemed to me that the story of neoliberalization was a very much more complicated one and I therefore wanted to, to uh, pay attention to it and to try to give a, a narrative account 
of where neoliberalization came from, how it worked through uneven geographical development, how it worked differently in different places at different times, how, for example, it occurred in New Zealand or how it occurred in Sweden or how it occurred in Mozambique or how it took place in, in, in India what, and what degree of it took place because the process has not ended. A lot of the struggle you're seeing now in the European Union is precisely over the degree of neoliberalization of the economy. And that the election in Germany uh, seems to me to be partly about a resistance to further neoliberalization. And it's odd to find somebody like Chirac saying, you know, being, saying, no, we don't want further neoliberalization. And it's Tony Blair who's pushing the neoliberal project and the others who are resisting it. So there's a, still a very complicated story of, of struggle around this process of, of neoliberalization. So what I wanted to do then was to partly tell the story as a historical geographical story of where it originated, where it went, and how it, how it arose in different places. Uh, but then what I did was to sort of say, well, how do we explain this story and, 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 and what's it about? And there are three main threads that I looked at in the, in the argument. The first thread is that this has to do with the power of ideas. And the power of ideas uh, is, uh, of course, significant historically, and th therefore we have to take it, uh, take it seriously. And the issue here was the way in which a particular package of ideas, which are called neoliberal, were put together in a particular way. Now, neoliberalism as a theory is quite complicated and the many versions of it. Uh, but the version that it seemed to me it would be useful to look at was uh, the sort of von Hayek version, which began to be put together in something called the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947, when Hayek, Milton Friedman, uh, Ludwig von Mies, Karl Popper for a while, and various other luminaries got together and decided that they were going to sort of create an ideological movement around neoliberalism. It was called neoliberalism because they took the liberal principles of freedom and liberty of the 18th century very seriously. The neo came from their adherence to neoclassical economics and their view that liberty and freedom of the individual could only be guaranteed by free markets, free trade, and a strong system of private property rights. And that therefore there was a whole sort of economic theory which was backing up the political, uh, political theory. Now, Hayek was very prescient in a sense. He said that it's going to take a whole generation for our ideas uh, to, to become real. And what they did was they managed to get some funds together. They, they, they got think tanks together. The Institute of Economic Affairs in London early took on their ideas. They started to persuade all kinds of organizations and, and the media, the Financial Times and things like that to, to push very hard in this in, in this direction, and they produced lots of position papers and lots of ideas, but nevertheless, during the 1950s and the 1960s, they were very much a minority group. Nobody took them seriously in the whole halls of policy because the policy was dominated uh, by Keynesianism and the ideas of state interventionism, which produced the social democratic state in, in, in Europe and many other sort of interventionist structures. Uh, with considerable state command over the economy of uh, planning of industrial uh, development and, and, and the like. And it's hard to know exactly what to call this because, you know, you'd hardly call the, the United States a democratic state um, but, uh, or a social democratic state. And, and so in the end, we adopt the term of saying, well, during the 1950s and 1960s, we had embedded liberalism, i.e. a market system, which is, however, embedded in a whole set of institutional restraints, regulatory structures, institutional arrangements like unions and, 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 and the like, which are actually limiting uh, what the market can do and how it can do it, and in particular, limiting capital movements and capital control, uh, and with, through capital controls.
So here you have uh, a situation where the main arguments are Keynesian, interven state interventionist and the like, and that period of 1950 and 1960 was developing, was delivering high economic growth. And whatever way you look at it, it was a quite extraordinary a period in capitalist history in that that economic growth was sustained and while it had many hiccups and many marginalizing aspects, it was nevertheless a very dynamic uh, kind, of, kind of process. And so there was no reason to abandon the, those, those realms of thought, um, even though all of these, the neoliberals were carping in the wings about there's not enough liberty and not enough freedom, there's too much bureaucracy, there's too much state intervention, the state is a big threat to individual liberty and freedom uh, in, in, in that kind of way. The difficulty occurred, of course, in the 1970s when the embedded liberalism no longer seemed to work. And at that point, uh, all kinds of things started to go wrong. The Keynesian techniques didn't seem to work anymore. There was a crisis of capital accumulation in the 1970s. And, and therefore, people started casting around saying, well, we need good ideas. Where are those ideas? And at that point, you know, the neoliberals said, me, me, me. And in the mid-1970s, they started to be listened to. And they were listened to in part through more and more elements in the media and, and, and so on. And then uh, when Margaret Thatcher came to power in particular, she took on board an advisor, Keith Joseph, who was uh, a member of the Institute of Economic Affairs, who was dedicated to a neoliberal project. And Margaret Thatcher listened very closely uh, to Keith Joseph and started to implement uh, this neoliberal, neoliberal uh, project. So the ideas became significant. And uh, there's something about these ideas which I think are very significant in relationship to many of the social movements that had existed in the 1960s. And the way I want to treat this is, is to say, you know, there's a very simple way to look at this. A lot of the movement of the 1960s was about two things. It was indeed about individual liberty and freedom. I think of the Berkeley free speech movement and all the rest of it. So there was a strong element of individual libera uh, liberation from corporate control, state control. So there was a strong movement of that kind. There was another aspect of the movement which was about social justice. Now what the neoliberals did was to have a rhetoric which emphasized individual liberty and freedom. They basically said to everybody, we'll give you the individual liberty and freedom, you forget the social justice. And that is in effect what has happened, it seems to me, over the last 30 years. That the emphasis upon individual liberty and freedom has been perpetually there, though of course there's a question of how it's going to be realized. It's going to be realized through consumerism and niche consumerism and all the rest of it. That's another, another part, of, uh, part of the story. So the neoliberals had a very powerful rhetorical device in which to start to persuade people and, and in fact, many of the people in the movement of 68 could be persuaded to take the, uh, the sort of uh, part of the neoliberal line precisely because it was about that individual liberty and freedom and, 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 and the like. So this was uh, a part of the story and it continues to this day. And there's, there's a sort of interesting moment in 1973, which I reflected upon when, when Richard Nixon signing part of this big raft of legislation which uh, came through in the early 1970s, setting up things like the Environmental Protection Agency, Consumer Protection and all the rest of it. He signed all of this, which was kind of anti-corporate legislation, and he, signed, he, and he did it with a kind of a sigh. He kind of said, I guess we're all Keynesians now. But what I want to suggest to you was that it was the end of the Keynesian era. And that and there's a very funny sense in which I think we are all neoliberals now. And how much we've absorbed the neoliberal ideology and we think in neoliberal terms is one of the big issues. I think we have to confront all of us in terms of how much we've absorbed from that so that we actually still, we're thinking in neoliberal terms even when we're critical 
of uh, this administration or the Clinton administration or, or whoever. So the ideas side of things is, I think, very important. The second thing, the second point would be to say, well, you know, the neoliberal project uh, was really an answer to the problems of capital accumulation. There was a crisis of capital accumulation in the 1970s. Uh, stagflation was everywhere. It was a global crisis. And it wasn't simply about OPEC and it wasn't, it was, you know, it was all of those things were going on well before uh, the oil crisis and, and the like. And so the 1970s were really a pretty rough period, an extremely rough period in terms of the dynamics of capitalism. Capitalism was failing, and the big issue was, can it be rescued, and how can it be rescued? Now, at that point, the left had an opportunity, and the left could have taken a position and said, okay, we don't want to rescue capitalism, we want to go beyond capitalism, and there's a question about why the left didn't do that. The main solution of the left was to do, of the, of the, of the left that was in power, that was, as opposed to the sort of theoretical left, which was uh, sort of out there, uh, you know, engaging in its sectarian debates, um, the, 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 those in power, like the Labour Party in Britain, took a corporatist line. And they basically said, okay, we're all in this together, let's all hunker down. And the result of that was the Labour Party was disciplining its own, uh, its own constituency, i.e. its own working class. So there's a tremendous tangle between the Labour government and the working class movement and lots of fighting going on of that sort. So, yeah, and, and corporatism didn't work, and it didn't work uh, anywhere very much as a, as a response to the crisis. And so the left didn't have a good set of ideas. And in that circumstance, the neoliberals were saying, okay, we will get the thing going again. So at that point then, neoliberalism started to be one of the ways in which we were going to revive capital accumulation. And the first place where this was attempted was, as I mentioned, Chile. And Chile was an interesting case in that when Pinochet took over, he was part of a junta, and some of the other members of the junta, Gustavo Lee in particular, uh, was a Keynesian. And so it was only when Pinochet assumed total power in 1975 that Pinochet could then turn to the business elite and ask them about, well, okay, can we get a different uh, way of doing things? And at that point, it was all the economists who were then at the Catholic University of Santiago who had been trained here in the economics department of Chicago, but were then in, there were brought into government to do the restructuring that I've, that I've already mentioned. And what the Chilean case did uh, was to start to alert people as to exactly what could be done through neoliberalization. And the Chilean economy jump-started very fast and moved very quickly, and it was a very great success story for a few years. And then in 1982, it came crashing down in a financial crisis, huge kind of financial crisis. And after that, the Chileans took a much more pragmatic kind of line, where, in which they were not fully neoliberals. They were kind of uh, inching their way. Well, you know, there were theoretical neoliberals in, in the sort of late 1970s, and then they started to be pragmatic ones after, 19, uh, after 1982. And this, I think, is uh, an important lesson, because the pragmatism of neoliberalization is something I want to get to as opposed to the theory. There's a big gap between the theoretical apparatus and the pragmatic version that has actually dominated in, 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 world, in, in the world over the last 30 years. But the, what the Chilean case suggested was that neoliberalization might not work in its pure form. And actually Thatcher found that out very fast. Thatcher's neoliberalization and her neoliberal reforms did not work very well. She would not have got re-elected in 1983 unless it, she had been at war with the, uh, the Malvinas in Argentina. 
And that was one of the main reasons. It was nationalism that got her re-elected, not the fact that, she had, that, that there was this great success. Uh, Reagan's reforms didn't produce a great boom in this country. And in fact, very interestingly, if you look at the boom centers in the 1980s, they were West Germany and Japan, which were not neoliberalizing at all. Neoliberalism was not working, actually, in terms of jump-starting the economy. It was not doing it. It was not doing a good job. And part of the argument I made in the book is right the way down the line, you'll find that neoliberalism has not been very good at capital accumulation. And, and it's not been good at restoring it. In fact, as soon as you get into some of the, the dramatic neoliberalization, like Russia or something like that, you find negative rates of growth for several years. You also find what neoliberalization does is to generate financial crises all over the place. The number of financial crises that have occurred since 1980 are enormous. So you've got, so, so, so actually there's a, there's a real serious problem about whether neoliberalization actually solves the problems of, uh, of capital accumulation. And at that point, it comes back to another issue of, well, if pure neo neoliberal theory doesn't work, and of course that's one of the criticisms that Stieglitz makes of the IMF these days, is kind of saying, look, it's a purely neoliberal apparatus, and when then, you know, uh, it's, not, it's, it, it's, it's not really working, but we need something else that, that, that really works. But this leads us into thinking about, well, what was the pragmatic version of neoliberalization? And I want to make an argument, and I spend quite a time on this in the book, saying the, 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 the litmus case, the, 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 the pioneer case in this was not Chile, it was New York City and the fiscal crisis of New York City in 1975. And what happened in 1975, and I'm going to go over this extremely briefly, what happened in 1975 is the investment bankers in New York City refused to fund the city's debt. They refused to roll over the debt and forced the city close to bankruptcy. And as they forced the city into bankruptcy, they then put themselves in a position to take over the budget of New York City, first through the municipal assistance uh, control board and then the emergency financial control board. And essentially what this meant was that all the tax receipts were no longer under democratic control in New York City. They were under the control of this board, which made decisions on how they were to be allocated and, and when. Leaving the city government to discipline its own municipal labor force. Not only to discipline that labor force, but also to start to actually find new sources of revenue. One of the big struggles in 1975 onwards was uh, imposing tuition at CUNY. CUNY was tuition free and imposing tuition at CUNY was, okay, user fees have to be put in there, you have to, you have to pay for it. So this business, I think, was I think just uh, part of, the, part of the, the, the story of how, in a, in a way, the financial institutions engineered a financial coup against New, uh, against New York City, which was just as effective as the military coup had been in, uh, in Chile. And that financial coup allowed uh, uh, the investment bankers to restructure the, uh, the, the New York economy. And they were backed by the state, and in particular by uh, William Simon, then Secretary of the Treasury under, under Ford, who gave Ford the advice to when New York appealed to the federal government for help. Uh, there was that famous headline in the news, you know, Ford says to city, drop dead. And uh, so there was a total refusal of the federal government to bail them out. And William Simon went on record, he's saying, I want New York City to hurt so bad that no other jurisdiction in this country will ever try to do what they've done again. 
And what they have tried to do, of course, was to build the equivalent of a social democratic state, a welfare state, strong education services, strong uh, public health uh, services, uh, lots of investment, and of course, lots of employment in, the, in, in municipal unions and, and the like, which was partly compensating for the deindustrialization that had set in during the 1960s. So this discipline in New York City uh, was a very crucial element in the situation. But in discipline in New York City, the investment bankers didn't simply walk away from the city, and there's a very simple reason they didn't. They had a lot of property in the city. Uh, and the big problem that had occurred in the 1970s was, of course, a property crash, a property market crash. And it would be interesting to see if we're going to see the same thing uh, in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> Um, a property market crash, uh, and, and uh, they were really hurting. The, a lot of the property owners were really hurting. And, and this was the time when, for example, they built the World Trade Center, and there it was standing empty, and the only way they could actually, actually fill it with anybody was to put all these state functions in it. So in a sense, the state had to subsidize. So the state assets were going into subsidizing the World Trade Center, you know, because nobody else wanted to, uh, to be in there. And, and, and a, lot of, you know, a lot of surplus... Uh, uh, office space and all this kind of thing. So one of the things the investment bankers did was ask themselves the question, how can we actually re revitalize New York City? And one of the key institutions in this was the Downtown Business Partnership, which set up a whole kind of strategy for marketing the city as a cultural center, marketing it as uh, a place uh, uh, for tourists, uh, but also recentering the place uh, as the center of, of global financial services. And on that point, they were held, helped out mightily by the federal government because in 1973, with the OPEC price rise, masses and masses of petrodollars were assembling over in Saudi Arabia and places like that, and the Saudis didn't know what to do with it. And in 1973, we now know that the U.S. actually threatened to invade Saudi Arabia to occupy the oil wells to bring the price down. They didn't invade the oil wells, but what we do know they did was that the Saudis... Uh, agreed to put all of their extra petrodollars into uh, the New York financial markets so that New York could position itself as the arbiter of all of the petrodollars globally in terms of it became the investment center of a global financial, financial system. So you were rebuilding New York around financial services, legal services, all those kinds of things, rebuilding it as tourism. They came up with this famous, you know, the famous logo, I love New York, that's the, when this was, uh, this was uh, devised. Um, and there was, a, there was a, at the same time as they were cutting all of the services amongst the unions, there was this wonderful moment in this story when <coughs> the, the, um, there was this uh, incredible kind of conflict. Uh, the fire union and the police union didn't like the fact that they were you know, being laid off and all these kinds of things. And so they launched a campaign to go back to a, go against uh, the, the, the investment bankers' campaign to market the city, and they, they started to proclaim something called Fear City. And they went out to Kennedy Airport and all these other places and gave people leaflets and said things like this. Uh, there are no police to protect you in Manhattan, so don't travel on the buses except at midday. Uh, don't go on the subway ever. Uh, and by the way, if your hotel burns down, you just better jump out the window because there'll be no fire services to rescue you. And, they, they actually, and, 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 and actually, this got back to Europe and, and all the rest of it, and, and, and the tourist stuff started to drop off. And so the investment bankers said to the city, hey, we've got to do something about this. So they started to rehire fire services, and they started to rehire uh, police. But guess where they put them? They put them all in Manhattan. 
They took him away from the boroughs, they took him away from Staten Island and all this kind of stuff. So you ended up with a massive crime wave out in the, out in the boroughs and all this kind of stuff, while as you tried to seal off Manhattan as the playground uh, for the rich and the place where the cultural services were going to be and the cultural activities were going to be. Now, what, this, what the New York City thing did, and I, Bill Tabb at the time wrote a little book where he kind of said, you know, the Reagan administration, when it came in after this, simply transformed what had been done to New York and said, this is going to be our national policy. And it went even further than that, because if you look at what the IMF got up to after 1980 or so, this became uh, then part of the whole kind of apparatus of, of structural adjustment. In other words, what was pioneered in New York City in 1975 was structural adjustment. And that structural adjustment then became part of a global, global strategy. But the pragmatic aspects of this were twofold. What the New York City disciplinary thing did was it departed from neoliberal theory in, a, in a, just a couple of ways. The first way was that in the event of a conflict between the integrity of financial institutions and the well-being of a population, you choose the integrity of financial institutions. This is what the Emergency Financial Control Board did. It brought in all the money and all the taxes. It paid off the bondholders and whatever's left went into the city budget. This is what they did. And what this said is that actually uh, you move from a society where in neoliberal theory, uh, lender should beware. If you make bad investments, you should bear the cost of it. But what neoliberal practice did was to say, hey, it's borrower beware. And after that, what happened to Mexico? Mexico went bankrupt in 1982, and instead of uh, all the New York banks going bankrupt, which they should have done because of the way they had used those petrodollars in Mexico, no, 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 we're going to make the Mexicans pay. And that's, of course, what structural adjustment is about all the time. It's about making the people pay for financial institutional mistakes. And what we've seen is a long, long history of the last 30 years of precisely that thing happening. How many bailouts have you seen? You know, the savings and loan stuff, the long-term capital management, you know, you know. You bail them out. You don't put them all in jail and say, hey, you know, uh, you made the big, big mistakes. You're the one. The people have to pay. And that's the sort of principle which has worked out in New York City. And that's not a neoliberal principle. That is very much against neoliberal theory. The second principle is this, that the state under neoliberal theory shouldn't be actively intervening in the economy. But what the state did after 1975 in New York City was to start to invest in the infrastructures which were going to support financial services, tourism, and all the rest of it. So actually what they did was they started to put this together in a certain way of, of using state monies. Instead of using them for the support of people and public hospitals, they started to put them into the infrastructures needed for all of these uh, services. And this was called uh, creating a good business climate. And what this means is, quite simply, if there's a conflict between creating a good business climate and the well-being of a population, you choose creating a good business climate. And I think it's significant that the last World Bank report that I read, you know, development report I read, is precisely instructing people how to create good business climates around the world. Now, good business climate is what? Good business climate means no regulation, you know, or regulation only on those things you don't like. It means uh, flexible labor markets. It means, uh, it means you know, sort of open access and, and, uh, to, to, uh, to political power, all of those kinds of things. So what we start to get is a lot of public-private partnerships which erupt in the 1970s, 1980s as part of the, the solution to the, to, the, to the situation. So the pragmatic version of neoliberalism is very much about that. And what we've seen again and again is 
those two principles visited upon different countries. And if you look at something like the Southeast Asian crisis, which I briefly describe in there, or what happened to South Korea, or what, what happened to Argentina, we'll see this principle working again and again and again. So the question here is, what is that principle doing and why that departure from neoliberal theory into that neoliberal practice? While the rhetoric of neoliberal theory there about freedom of the market and freedom of this and all this kind of stuff and freedom of choice and da-da-da-da is all there, and nevertheless, this, these practices are at the heart of what neoliberalization has been about and how uh, and why did that come about in the particular way it did. This leads to the third thesis that I explore, which actually turns out to be the only one that really makes sense. And that is that this whole kind of thing that went on in the 1970s uh, was a class project, that it was about the restoration of class power. Because if you start to look very carefully at the data in the 1970s, there was a wealth crash. Just thinking about this country, there was a wealth crash in the 1970s. The rich were really hurting. And they were not only hurting there, they were hurting in incomes. In the 1970s, the top 1% of income earners in this country received only, uh, only about 7 or 8% of the national income. By the time you get to the year 2000, they're receiving 16% of the national income. And right now, my guess is it's getting closer and closer to 20%. But even so, that, so they have doubled or more their share of the national income. When you look at the 0.1%, they have tripled their share of the national income. And actually, the same story is told in Britain, when you go look at the data in Britain. And then an interesting thing occurs when you start going around and say, when did neoliberalization come to Mexico? Big time. Well, it came in 1990, 92, 93. By 1997, you find 14 Mexicans on the Ford's wealthiest billionaires club list. What happened in the Soviet, ex-Soviet Union in Russia after, after shock therapy? Seven oligarchs take over about 50% of the economy. You just go around everywhere you look and you find as soon as a wave of neoliberalization strikes, then the income distribution shifts dramatically. Not simply the top 10%, not simply to the top 1%, but the top 0.1%. And then you start to look at other data. For instance, in the New York Times just recently, you know, you can trust the New York Times sometimes on something, <laughs> is, is they had a thing on, 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 on how wealthy are the, the Forbes wealthiest Americans these days. And, and the average wealth on you know, sort of standardized uh, money form in, in uh, 1985 was something like uh, 600 million. Now it's uh, 2.8 billion. In other words, they have, they have quadrupled uh, their, the, the, the wealth. And everywhere you look, you'll find exactly the same, exactly the same kind of data popping up at you. And, and even last year, there was another item in the New York Times just recently which talked about the tax returns. And the only group in, in that's actually increased its, its uh, income uh, above the rate of inflation is the top 1% of income earners in the country between 2003 and 2004. And when you go to the 0.1%, they've increased their income by 9% as opposed to 3.5% for the 1%. So it's actually an incredible concentration of wealth which is occurring and has occurred globally. And at this point you say to yourself, well, okay, maybe this is just an accident, all right? And actually, if you read, it's very interesting reading Stieglitz's book on uh, globalization and its discontent because, discontents because what he says is, well, you know, um, actually it seemed like somehow or other we, you know, we were making the poor poorer and the rich richer and it was like this was an accident somehow or other of policy. Well, my argument is, no, it's not an accident. It was actually a political project. 
And actually, if you go back in the 1970s, it's not hard to reconstruct who was engaged in that project. Now, there's a very good book, which I recommend to you, written in 1985 by a journalist called Thomas Edsel called The New Politics of Inequality. And basically, he documents how all the think tanks that were set up in the 19, 1970s, the Heritage Foundation, etc., etc., sort of started you know, getting in, into the act. How the Business Roundtable got set up in 1972. How the Supreme Court Justice, Lewis Powell, wrote a memo to the American Chamber of Commerce saying, business is getting a bad deal. We have to have a collective action uh, to try to rescue the, 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 the reputation of business, and the American Chamber of Commerce has to... Uh, has to lead that action, and after that, the American Chamber of Commerce got together with the National Association of Manufacturers, went to Washington, set up vast lobbying or, or institutions. And then came the fantastic stuff with the political action committees. In the wake of Watergate, they were only allowed to um, uh, contribute $5,000 to any one campaign. And in 1978, Reagan and William Simon, then Secretary of the Treasury, who, you know, who was, had a prominent role to play in the, in the New York fiscal crisis, what, 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 he did, what they did was they went round to all the political action committees and said, look, there's no point you just giving 5,000 to some influential senator, no matter whether it's Democratic or, or Republican. You have to collectively get together, and all of you PACs have to organize yourself so that the, you put your 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, and we get right-wingers elected to Congress. And this was the business roundtable and all the rest of them taking over the Republican Party. But then, of course, the Republican Party also needed some kind of popular base, and that's when, interestingly, Jerry Falwell for, forms uh, the Christian majority in 1978, the evangelicals start to come into the whole kind of picture, and we're seeing the end game of that kind of Republican Party political process uh, working out around us right, uh, right now. But this was a takeover of the Republican Party, turning it into a class instrument, and that class instrument was very explicit in what it was doing. I mean, for example, just a, the CUNY case was fascinating. I was fascinated to find out that the business roundtable played, you know, which is about, you know, all the big corporations covering about 50% of US GNP. The business roundtable took an active role in the CUNY tuition debate. How did it do it? It paid all kinds of people to publish learned articles, seemingly academic independent scholars, talking about how much better the educational quality would be if you paid tuition. And, and, and these were all published in that radical journal, the Reader's Digest. <laughs> Again, paid for by the Business Roundtable. Then what the Business Roundtable paid for was the reproduction of all of those articles in every college newspaper around CUNY campuses. I mean, they were really getting, I mean, you know, people say to me, you know, you're talking conspiracy theory. I say, no, this is, a, this is a political project. It was a systematic political project. And it was about restoring class power. And by the time they got Reagan elected, they knew they were on their way. And this was, I think, a very significant, a very significant aspect of it. Now, this then brings us back to the question of how then does neoliberalization occur in any circumstance, in any society, anywhere? And here the answer is you just can't simply say it's U.S. going in there and doing it. The Chilean case was not U.S. imperial policies imposing that on Chile. No, it was not that. What it was was a Chilean bourgeoisie actually invoking U.S. support for an internal coup. And a lot of the IMF restructuring does not occur because the, the U.S. imposes it. You know, It occurs because some internal class formation doesn't can't do it on its own, and wants to blame the IMF. 
And a classic case of that right now is Argentina. In Argentina, everybody blames the IMF. The government blames the IMF, and there's a great charade goes on where the IMF turns up and Kirchner won't talk to them and tells them to get lost and all this kind of stuff. And says, but actually, if you look carefully at what happened in Argentina, as everybody knows, the devaluations that occurred there transferred something like $14 billion from common people's savings into somebody's pockets. Whose pockets? Not the IMF's pockets, no, it went to recapitalize the banks and actually uh, it was what uh, somebody in a, you know, a neoliberal think tank said, it was, it was just robbery of the banks by the political and economic elite. So again, what we find again and again are these kinds of processes at work. So therefore, in each country what you find is a struggle between a particular elite. The Swedish case is particularly interesting. The Swedish case, they again tried to take over certain... Uh, think tanks and all the rest of it, and, and every time there's a crisis in, in, in Sweden, they wrote learned kind of treatises on why the problem is too much of the welfare state, too much you know, state intervention and the like. But they couldn't get anywhere. They had such a strong u union kind of movement. So one of the things they did was to say, let's go into the European Union. The European Union is more neoliberal than we are. Then they'll all be bound by the Maastricht Accords, and then, 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 then that's why we can consolidate neoliberal politics in Sweden. In each case, you'll find this, kind of, this particular kind of thing going on. And the China case, and I have a whole chapter on China, which is fascinating to go through. The China case, what you see is, again, immense concentrations of wealth emerging in China. It's gone from one of the most egalitarian societies in the world in 1980 to one of the most inegalitarian societies in the world right now. And there's an interesting kind of question. Of, you know, how is that relating to the political party and, 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 and the like? So there are many interesting kinds of questions. So the main thesis that seems to make sense right now is to say, look, when we look at this whole kind of thing, what we're looking at over the last 30 years has been a restoration or reconstitution of class power. Not necessarily to those people who were in the upper classes in 1970 because there's been a morphing of who the capitalist class is. It's much more about financial services and legal apparatuses and all the rest of it. So there's been a morphing of all of that. But nevertheless, capitalism has re-established one, uh, one of its main traits, which is a tremendous concentration of wealth within uh, a very small group of, of the population. And we see this happening everywhere where neoliberalization takes hold. So this is, if you like, one of the major theses. But then what I wanted to do was to say, well, okay, what are we looking at now? Are we looking at a crisis situation? Is neoliberalization working? It's not doing very well from the standpoint of accumulation. So where is it getting its wealth from? Where are these, and, and, and this is where I use one of the concepts I used in the new imperialism, which is a lot of it's about accumulation by dispossession. You know, you read all this data about how wealthy these people are coming in, in, in this country, and then you go and you say, oh, you know, the workers, you know, how many pension schemes have gone down the chute recently? How many people have lost their pension rights? How many people have lost their health care rights? What's going on with General Motors and Delphi and United Airlines and all the rest of it? And, 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 and you suddenly kind of look at this and you kind of say, look, on a daily basis what we're being fed is these people are being deprived of their rights. These people are getting richer and richer and richer. And this leads me, if you like, to one kind of very simple kind of conclusion. There's a lot of struggle against neoliberalization around the world. And it's usually against some specific aspect of it. Environmental degradation here. A misappropriation of resources there. Uh, dispossession of, uh, of rights uh, uh, through eminent domain somewhere else. 
problems of uh, workers being, being laid off, uh, outsourcing, all those kinds of things. So there are many individual struggles going along. But when you look at the total package of what has happened, it seems to me we've actually had, for the last 30 years, a sophisticated class war waged against all of us. And if it looks like class war, and it feels like class war, and why don't we call it class war? And why don't we engage on it back? Thanks very much.